Good morning. We have been given another first day of the week, and our intention is to use this time to offer to God our praise in song, in prayer, in giving, and taking the Lord's Supper, and now by opening His Word for our learning. Four passages I want to put before us to begin our study together. These are on the screen in your Bible, and you can listen as we read. First, in Matthew 4 and verse 4, where Jesus said in response to the devil's temptation, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, and in verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you may perceive <clears throat> my insight into the mystery of Christ. During World War II, servicemen stationed overseas, either on the front lines or in support services, would write letters back home. Back then, during World War II, there was no email, cell phones, or internet. It would take sometimes weeks for those letters to arrive back home in the States. Mail carriers here in the States would later report that when those letters arrived in the mailbox back home, often family members would be out next to the road to meet the carrier at the box, take the letter from their serviceman and run back into the house, anxious to read the letter from their father, their husband, someone's brother. And those letters were kept. They became historical family documents. Families would immediately gather in the kitchen or the living room 
everything would go quiet, the letter would be read carefully with the highest level of attention. Sometimes it would be read over and over again. It was a lifeline. It was a critical point of contact and connection with their loved one. If that was the case, when those letters arrived from the soldiers and sailors and airmen, how much more should we give repeated and close attention to the Word of God, the Father's letter to His children? We live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His written word is profitable to us in the highest sense. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Paul said, when you read this, you can understand. Are you reading the word of God? Do you take time to read and study the Word of God? Do you recommend it to your friends that they read and study the Word of God? Do you gather your children at home and read the Word of God? In your marriages, is the Word of God central? I hope that's true of everybody here. Like the families in World War II, excited to read those letters from overseas, how much more should we be eager to read and study the Word of God? How do we do that? What specific steps do we take? How do we read and study the Bible in such a way that we are properly managing and handling the text of Scripture in our lives through application? Drawing sound conclusions. Preparing ourselves to apply what we're reading. It's very easy to say to people, read and study the Bible. But what do you mean by that specifically? What is it about this important task that we need to know? What are some of the basics about Bible reading and Bible study? Please consider with me this morning four things we must do every time we read and study the Bible. Do these four things every time you read and study the Bible and you'll be enriched by the most powerfully written message to ever be given in the history of time. Number one, pay attention to context. Webster's Dictionary says that this word context means the parts of a discourse that surround the word or passage and can throw light on what that word or passage means. The history behind the word context is interesting. The word context has to do with connection. Connection with other information in the vicinity of the verse and in the book itself that helps you understand what that verse or paragraph is saying. I want to give to you a very simple illustration of the value of context. 
And I want you to listen to everything I'm going to say, not just the first thing I'm going to say, because the first thing I'm going to say may shock you. So please stay with me. What if I said to you, the Bible says there is no God. Now wait a minute, Warren. I remember what you preached last Sunday morning about all the powerful evidence of God's existence. Are you telling me the Bible says there is no God? I'm telling you. That exact statement is in the Bible. There is no God. But what is the context of that statement? Please turn to Psalms. 14. I want you to see it on the page. Please turn to Psalm 14, verse 1. And immediately you see it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now what have we done? What have we done? We have consulted the context of a statement. We're not just going to quote the part that says there is no God. That would be a misrepresentation of the truth, the whole truth in the page, on the verse. Integrity and respect for God's Word require that we quote the statement with what's connected to it. The fool says in his heart there is no God. We must read and study the Bible always, every time, with good attention to context. On social media and the internet, on bumper stickers and plaques and banners and jewelry, there are quotations from the Bible. Sending a message that is sometimes denied by the missing context. There are two words in Matthew chapter 7, judge not, often quoted to suggest we are never to express anything neg negative about any sin or any sinner. But that's denied when you look at the whole context and see that Jesus is condemning <clears throat> hypocritical judging. People will say, though, it's in the Bible when they can find just a bit of are a peace, that's what they want to say. The question is, where is that quotation? What else is connected to it? What's in the context around it? I'm going to say to us that every time we read and study the Bible, and especially when we pull out some quote, pay attention to context. Bring in all the information the Bible provides about that passage or that verse. Who was the writer? Who were the recipients? What was going on when that was said? What else is on the page? Try to discover the historical situation behind the passage you're reading. Is it Old Testament or New Testament? What dispensation? We need context. Before you draw a conclusion, you need context. Do that every time you read and study God's Word. Dismiss what you want the passage to say. Here's another problem in the way people handle Scripture. It's the old problem of personal emotion and objectivity. 
Here's what happens frequently. We start out before we open the Bible with an already formed conclusion. We know what we want to find and often we think we've found it. We really want the Bible to say something. We really have already decided what we want it to say. And then when we open the Bible with that already formed viewpoint and that attached emotion, we can always find a passage or a verse that sounds like what we want it to say. That's the old problem of personal emotion and objectivity, an absence of objectivity. We are sometimes driven by what we want the Bible to say, which sometimes is different from what it actually says. What we're talking about at its core right here is maturity, humility, self-honesty. I must not decide what I want the Bible to say and then find something I can point to to justify what I want. I must remove emotional desires and personal situations and sending out a search party for excuses. Just read the Word and be honest. What does it say? If you really want the Bible to say something it doesn't say, that's a defective approach. Just open the Bible and let God speak without imposing on His Word what you want it to say. Dismiss what you want the passage to say and let the passage speak to you objectively. This requires intense self-honesty and respect for God's Word. Every one of us who open the Word of God need to be aware of the risk of presuppositions and self-generated outcome. Let the Word be God's Word. You may need to change what you believed before. You may be convicted of an immature or selfish attitude. You may be prompted to do what you haven't done before. You may be driven to do what you've been doing better. And you will always be a better person. When you read God's Word honestly, and then you do what it says. More about that in a few minutes. The Bible student's purpose is not to reshape the Scripture to agree with what we want. No. The Bible student's purpose is to let Scripture reshape us. Identify the main idea. If you're in my Bible classes, you hear me talk about this all the time. Many of the Bibles published today are printed in paragraph format paragraph format, sometimes with a heading above the paragraph, and that may help. The paragraph sections and the headings may not always help us, but they convey to us the idea to look for the main idea. Look for the main idea. See, the Holy Spirit gave the writers the words, I cannot argue with the structure or literary form. It was written perfectly. So there's a main idea. What is it? The details will inform you. The context will help you. What is the main idea? Let me give you an example. 
in the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. Readers and students of that last book in the New Testament would be well served to read Revelation looking for the main idea. In Revelation, we are intrigued by fascinating images, the mysterious creatures, the dark scenes. And the temptation is to get so locked into those colorful, dramatic images that we really miss the main point. Or we come to one of those images and we want to dig into it detail by detail and identify each part of each image. But what is the main idea? What is the main idea? What's the main idea of the book of Revelation? Would you please turn to Revelation 17, 14. <clears throat> 17, 14. Here's what we're doing right now. All those dragons and mysterious creatures and huge images and dark scenes and bad things happening. Um, what's that all about? That's what we want to know. What's that all about? All those monsters and bad scenes and dark images are defeated once and for all by a lamb. You know who that lamb is? I'm in Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ is the Lamb, and the main idea is he will defeat everything that's represented as dark and evil. And where do we want to be? Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I hope that describes us. Now, that's the main idea of the book of Revelation. If I were taking notes in a brand new Bible, I'd go to the very first page of Revelation chapter 1, and I'd write at the top of that, see Revelation seventeen fourteen for the main idea. And I promise if you start out with the main idea, you will not get lost in the imagery. There's war between evil and good, and good wins. Christ wins. He is the Lamb of God. We need to be on His side. Always read and study the Bible with concentration on the main idea. Open now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Number 4 is concentrate on application. Brother Ron brought this up in the reading earlier. Concentrate on application. Once we've read for context, we have determined we're going to be objective and not impose on the passage what it doesn't say. We've identified the main idea. The details have informed that. What then? Where is Bible reading and Bible study headed? What's the destination? What do you need to do? What are the takeaways? How will I use what I've learned in my life?
So let's do this little exercise. It'll just take a few minutes. James 1, 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James 1, 2 through 8. What's the main idea? It is joy even in trials of various kinds. Well, what's the context? James is writing to Christians who are being scattered and undergoing trials. We go into this not with something we want to impose on the passage, so objectively reading the passage and aware of the context, we immediately discover the main idea. Joy for faithful Christians, even in trials of various kinds. All right, we've done the work. We've done the work in the text. What is there here after doing the reading and the study and the work that we take into our lives? What is the application? One is we can have joy even through the storms of life. The faithful can. Having that joy requires that we know something. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Well, it might be good if you could just go down to the store and buy some steadfastness. But that's not the way God set it up. God says we can have joy in our trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So, in those times of difficulty, I have to remember this and know this and I have to dwell on this. I can have joy in trials knowing that as I'm being tested, something good is being produced in me. Patience and steadfastness. The joy is connected to knowledge that there is benefit God has built into testing. But I can have it. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now what are we doing? You see what we're doing. We are acknowledging what the context is. We're not imposing something we've already decided on the passage. We're not forcing a preconceived view on it. We've read it. We've identified the main idea. Now what are we doing? We're taking it all to application. Personal application. We're going to face trials with this knowledge that in our trials God has built in a strengthening process for us. And therefore we're able to have joy in and through the storms of life. This was written to Christians 
James is saying to them and to us, various kinds of trials don't have to crush you. Please, may I persuade us away from this idea. Well, I'm going to read my Bible, then I'm going to go to that building, and I'm going to let the preacher do the study and tell me what it means. Please, no. Come to the building. Let me help you. But you need to read and you need to study. You can let me help you learn how to read and study, but you need to dig in and equip yourself with experience and practice and time. Every time you read the Bible, you know what to do with passages. Pay attention to context. Take away preconceived ideas out of your mind. Let God speak from the page to you. Identify the main idea and then take it all to personal application. You can do that. Every single one of you, you can do it. I'll tell you a secret. Preachers are not smarter than you. You may never stand in a pulpit. But you can do this. You can do this. And it will become the delight of your life. As you read and study the Bible, you'll discover the excitement. And you'll want to spend more and more time nourishing yourself with the Word of God. You'll be enriched and encouraged and informed and motivated. And you'll be equipped to help others feed on the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from the diet, the menu, the milk and meat of God's Word. If you're ready to respond to the Word of God, we'd like to help you with that as we stand together and as we sing. Choices, rules, imparts to keep the